Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Are they really historic? Well, actually, actually, they are historic studios. Oh, yeah. I mean, the building here housing our studios on Broadway and Bangor, Maine, has been around since... 20s? 1920s? Uh, the building was late 1920s for the transmitter wow. uh, building. And this studio has been a studio since the 40s, I believe. Wow. This, this room has been the main broadcast studio. Well, there. So it wasn't us making history. We're not saying it's historic because we're here. Frankly, if anything, we're tarnishing the legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome into Downtown the Podcast, episode Number 129, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two awfully talented guests who will join us this week on the program. In the second half, we talk with, I'm going to call her a legend because she is, doggone it, legendary comedy writer Meryl Marco, head writer of Late Night with David Letterman. But she's had a tremendous career, including work in front of the camera as well and has been a hugely successful author, too. She's a multiple Emmy Award winner and uh, won recently the Patty Chayefsky Laurel Award for her work in writing. She'll talk with us about her new book, her first graphic novel, called We Saw Scenery. Well, that's in the second half. That in itself would be enough in the first half of the podcast this week, though we talk with, uh, without a doubt, one of our favorite people to talk with whenever she's on our radio show or on the podcast, the immensely talented Roseanne Cash, who uh, we've had the pleasure of seeing in concert a couple of times within the last uh, couple of years here in the state of Maine, but like every other performer, not able to go out and tour and perform. But uh, she has channeled that energy into creating a powerful song for our times called Crawl Into the Promised Land. And we'll play some of that in a little while. But uh, we had a chance to talk with Roseanne about how she's doing, dealing with the pandemic, the making of this terrific song, and the road ahead for the nation. Here's Roseanne Cash on Downtown, the podcast. Hi, Rich. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well, given the circumstances. You know, one foot in front of the other, one day at a time. Yeah, same here. Uh, the new song is is so powerful, so needed uh, right now. And in your, your letter, your essay about the new song, you talked about physics. Was it, was it entropy? I wasn't a good science student. Was it entropy, the need for things to fall apart before they can come back stronger? Is that what it's called? I couldn't remember the word either. I just knew that there was a model that, uh, that things have to fall apart first before they come back at a more refined, evolved level. And I just have to believe that's what's happening right now. I sure hope so. These are uh, such such stressful times. The pandemic, uh, you know, the fight for justice for blacks in America, the nonsense coming from the White House. And, and with that comes, as you said, a sense of isolation and panic. And, and your response, I guess, is it safe to say your therapy is, is in the writing? Well, I would hate to say it was just therapy because that takes it to that and it kind of diminishes it in a way because then it takes it out of the realm of being actual work and craft and art and, you know. But at the same time, doing it is very, it has an organizing principle as far as my feelings and my thoughts. I mean, I 
a lot of writers have said this, and I totally agree, is that sometimes you don't know what you're thinking or feeling until you write it. And um, I realized how much outrage and grief I feel right now, It's you know, and tormented. And, uh, and I am a, in a very priv- privileged position. And the suffering that's gone on around me, you know, it just, uh, it's, I think it's pulled at all of us. And trying to find some common humanity, the things that we all believe in, because there's so much division right now. And I know those things are there. I think, too, of the fact, and, and you talk about it in your essay, the notion that you... Uh, or, or any of us who love our country, uh, but know we haven't yet fulfilled the promise of America completely. The notion that anybody who thinks that we, we could be viewed as an enemy or unpatriotic is, is not only ridiculous, but dangerous. It's, yeah. The, I, I said in the essay that, you know, my family, uh, both sides of my family, my ancestors fought in the Revolutionary War. And that every generation since then, through the War of 1812, on up, a man has served in the military of my family every generation. And that I feel so rooted as an American and treasure all of those things that are quintessentially American, you know, particularly because of who I am, the music and the, and the art. And so to be vilified as an enemy by 40% of the country like you said, it's it's dangerous and insulting, but it's also hurtful. You know, it's like I'm dug in here for centuries. <laughs> and I don't know how we how we got to this place, and maybe it didn't happen just in the last three and a half years, but how we got to a place in America where you couldn't just disagree with people. You couldn't believe that we were... We were on our way to the same destination, but taking a different path. But But now we've reached this place where those who don't agree with those in power are not just wrong, but they are evil. Yeah, I don't get it. Um, I grew up in a, in a household and in a climate where Republicans and Democrats disagreed respectfully and had conversations that were worthwhile and deep and thoughtful. And even if nobody's opinion changed at the end, they walked away after having raised a glass and shaken hands. I want to see that time come back. You know, I, it's frightening how much tribalism there is. And what, I'm, what we're missing is community. You know, uh, before my year's worth of concerts got canceled, um, you know, at the beginning of the lockdown, I was talking about this in concert for the last year about community. I just felt this urgency to find it. And I started saying to audiences, you know, hey, we have created community in two hours here. Mm. We can spread it out. We can do it. Well, I'm hopeful that's still the case here. Now, the words are, are so incredibly searing, powerful, hopeful. And then John Leventhal, who you know quite well, uh, just crafted <laughs> such incredible music to propel that message forward. Yeah, I had written the lyrics to Crawl into the Promised Land. Um, and you know, I gave him to John, and the music came really quickly. He knew exactly what to do. And then, you know, because we're in lockdown, we're fortunate to have a recording studio in our basement, and he played everything himself, and my son sang on it. We sent it to Sarah Rose, and she sang the high part on it um, remotely. 
And it came together so quickly, Rich. And then the record label, I just sent it to them, and they wanted to release it before the election because it's, it's pertinent, you know, it's timely. And I said to somebody yesterday, I said, I can't remember how it happened. <laughs> I can't remember writing the lyrics. I can't remember how John wrote the music, you know, and that's it's kind of a beautiful feeling. Like it just, it came out of a deep place. Well, and how long was it from from idea to boom? It's out there for all the world to hear. I guess I wrote the lyrics in June, and we recorded it. John was in the middle of another project, so when I finally gave him the lyrics, he he did that last month, you know, in September. Played it for the label, and they said we got to get this out before the election. So. Um, at the end of September, we were putting this video together. And I think that I really want people to see the video because the images are so powerful, connecting the civil rights movement mm. with the Black Lives Matter movement and the uh, women getting the right to vote with the Women's March, you know, and my mother's pictures in there, my husband. And, you know, it's like the last 50 years or, or even 100 years of what, we've been through as Americans. And it's a, it's a beautiful series of images. And my son shot all the footage of me. So this was really a family affair. And, and it's, uh, uh, make sure I get it right, Eric Baker and Phyllis uh, Hausen, who, who did the video work? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Phyllis is a film editor. Eric is a uh, photo curator. And he actually did the cover for my last album, The River and the Thread, as well. We're talking with Roseanne Cash here on Downtown. Deliver me from tweets and lies. Man, I love that line. We we were talking with Richard Schiff of the West Wing last week, and, and he, he brought this up, oh. and, and God, it rings true. Don't you long for a time when we could go a couple of days without even thinking about who the president is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great relief? Where the heat is so turned down in the drama that you just assume everybody's doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, or the focusing on the things that really matter instead of attacking and bullying and the vicious um, things that come out. It's like that doesn't that really doesn't matter. What really matters is how many people are dying right now. You know, and that 545 children have been separated from their parents and the parents can't be found. And these are things that matter. The, the EPA has deregulated chemicals that cause damage to fetuses. These things matter. Not attacking a journalist. And I, you know, I think about this, and I was, I was certainly no fan of, well, really either Bush administration. But I don't know that I ever, until the last few years, Question whether or not the person in that office on Pennsylvania Avenue cared about the American people. Even even with bad presidents, I thought, well, they're doing the best they can. I don't agree with them, but they're trying to do what they think is best. And that is so clearly not the case right now. No, it's clearly not the case. And I agree with you. I wasn't a fan. The, I think the Iraq War was a horrible, horrible misstep. But at the same time, like you said, I never doubted that he was a patriot and that he wanted to unify the country. I really believed that. But no matter how I disagreed with some things, that he was interested in governing all Americans. I do not feel that with the current occupant. 
you know, right now trying to withdraw federal support from what he calls anarchist jurisdiction. That includes, you know, taking care of mothers and babies. That includes all kinds of things that we need money for. I felt like making a, a T-shirt that says, you know, resident of an anarchist jurisdiction. <laughs> Well, it can be an overwhelming situation, and, and as you point out in the song, it's it's hard to com- comprehend it fully in the moment, 50 years away from here, 60 if I run. How, how do we get it back? How do we get our country back and crawl into that promised land again? You know, I am an, an optimist by nature, and I'm also an optimist by a feeling of responsibility, because I have five children You bring children into the world, and their future is laid out before them like a field of possibilities. If you're a pessimist as a parent or you despair, you're taking away that field from them. You're taking away part of their future. So I feel like no matter how worried I am, no matter how much in my private moments I despair, that it's my job to be optimistic for children. And I do believe that we're going to come out of this at that higher level that is modeled in physics. I do. I have to believe that. I can't believe in civil war. I can't believe in the destruction of the American ideal. It's still alive. And it's alive in so many of our imaginations that it, it, has, to, it has to happen. It has, we have to get there. I've got a six-year-old at home. I try to be optimistic for him, and I, I promise you, I did not teach him this, but when we're out for our driving and we see a Trump-Pence sign, he refers to them now as TP signs. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> out of the mouths of babes. Uh, you know, a lot of people have said, and I, and I think I've said this myself in the past, that, oh, Trump is a symptom. But by now, I, 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 the deeper we get into this, I think it's more than that, that, look, there are two separate problems, and the urgent matter is getting rid of the single most unqualified person to ever hold that job. And and I think it's so important. We know from four years ago that we don't get complacent in these last 10, 11 days. We can't because you know who actually won the 2016 election? <laughs> Did not vote. Yeah. That is who won the election. Because more people who were uh, eligible to vote didn't vote than did. And that kind of, you know, democracy doesn't work. If you don't vote, democracy does not work. So it's not only important to get registered, but to check your registration. If you're voting by mail, to track it, to see if it was received and, you know, that it was valid, which I've already done. Or if you're voting in person, to get there, you know, prepared to wait in line, which is voter suppression. I hate that, that they're... You know, people are getting intimidated at polling places and having to wait for six, eight hours. That shouldn't happen. I'm encouraged, though, when I see these people willing to wait six, eight hours to vote and the incredible turnout for early voting. And I and I hope that bodes well. I hope it means that the people have had enough and even people who maybe voted that way last time around have said, "I, I need more from my country than this. I agree. I mean, it is heartening. I, you know, it's finally people have gotten uh, motivated. Do you know, I've lived in New York City for 30 years, and we always knew who Trump was. He was always a con man from the beginning. 
And, you know, he was kind of a joke in New York circles, like, oh, you know, the guy uh, who has this pretense of being a great businessman who but has 3,500 lawsuits against him for non-payment of his contractors mm. and who, you know, defaults and declares bankruptcy all the time. Like, we knew that. So the idea, when he announced he was going to run, I laughed at John. Can you believe this? You know, so the whole thing is still an utter shock to me. Well, if if he goes away, though, there are still people who believe in that message and people with what appears to be an ample supply of hate and anger in their hearts. What happens to them? Do they do they go back into the shadows because it's no longer safe for them to to speak that way and say those words? And and is there any way for us to reach them and bring them back? I don't know. You know, the thing about his economic policies, well, that's BS because, you know, the, the tax breaks went to the 1% or um, that he's not afraid to speak his mind. Yeah, but he has no decency when he speaks his mind and he doesn't care about the norms and all of these careful constructions in our government that are supposed to take care of us, you know, just smashing them left and right and uh, stocking them with loyalists only. But the idea that, like you just said, that there is hatred and uh, violence that was covered up before maybe and is now out in the open, well, maybe it has to be out in the open for it to be healed and cured. And the thing that I keep going back to, Rich, is is education. I think that um, civics is not given enough um, attention in elementary school, nor is the history of slavery. And I think that if that real history was taught in full, that compassion would be aroused in young children and, and a pride in government and an understanding. You know, those things have to be supported, and the public school system is being gutted by the current education mm-hmm. secretary. Uh, all of it is falling apart, but again, I have to be an optimist. Well, I, I teach civics to high school freshmen and, and teach do you history. you really? Oh, you're my hero. That's right. I remember this now. I do, and it's, uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's encouraging, It's it's hopeful because... They want a better future, and, and and I have to be very careful of not being political and explaining that there are two sides and everybody's got their viewpoint. But but I'm hopeful because I see in them that, that they see through some of the some of the showmanship, some of the snake oil salesmen that exists there, mm-hmm. and, and I think they're perhaps in some ways more perceptive of that than some of the adults are. Totally agree. And uh, I'm just so happy you teach civics. That's wonderful. Uh, I, You know, I have a 21-year-old son, and he's incredibly disillusioned right now. But he um, uh, makes it a point to stay incredibly well-informed. He reads everything. And he's not a Biden fan, but he's going to vote for Biden. You know, he and all his friends were huge Bernie fans. And his point is, I don't want things to change slowly. I want them to change radically. And, you know, he thought Bernie was the guy to do it. I said, he will never be elected, honey. He goes, yeah, we're going to vote for Biden. But, you know, they want radical change. But that's not generally how it happens, is it? 
No, no. I, this was good, though. I asked some of my, my freshman students, hey, you all know, you're pretty smart. We've talked about this. What are the five freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment? And, and a good percentage of the class was able to list all five. I said, congratulations. You apparently know the First Amendment better than our next Supreme Court justice. Now, that is... I, I may have gone too far topic. with that. <laughs> no, this could be a very long conversation. So I'll say one thing about that. I have a very dear friend who was a clerk, a Supreme Court clerk for uh, Justice Brennan. And he's a constitutional scholar. He teaches constitutional law. Well, he's written this op-ed, and it's about to come out as an e-book, about how her nomination violates the religious clause in the Constitution, and he happens to that happens to be his specialty. And the reason is because Trump was advised by the evangelical mm. group and um, the, you know, very um, the Catholics who are what are they called? Very conservative, almost extreme Catholics. That that's who they wanted. I mean, and this is documented. And he didn't meet with anybody else. Right. She, well, it was all was set it. up by what is it, the Federalist Society that that pre-selects yeah. all these candidates for those judgeships. Right, but not just the Federalist this time, but it was a religious thing. So, Michael, my friend's point is that this violates the religious clause in the Constitution, and it, it's unconstitutional that she should be nominated. So, I don't think this is going to change anything. But it was fascinating to read specifically citing chapter and verse, mm. no pun intended, of why it's unconstitutional. Roseanne Cash with us here on Downtown. Uh, you wrote a, a wonderful piece a few months back about being an artist, a, a troubadour in these strange times, and how you missed the thing that you had wanted to lose. How's your relationship with the notion of touring these days? I, I, um... Like I said, I'm privileged. I really enjoyed being at home during quarantine. I really did. I was burnt out being on the road, you know, and I liked being in my own kitchen and I liked cooking and wandering around the house. And then suddenly, of course, all of these lyrics started coming because I wasn't traveling every day and I had time to think. And, uh, you know, my instincts for poetry and rhyme were still there and intact. So that's all been great. The idea that for me at my age that it actually might not happen again makes me really sad. You know, I have dates booked in April and I keep thinking, how is that going to happen? That probably won't happen in April. And I know venue owners too who are saying, eh, I don't think it's going to happen in April. And if it doesn't, we're all going to close, mm. which is heartbreaking. So there's all these initiatives right now, save our stages and, you know, help for independent musicians. Like I said, I, I'm sad about the idea that it might not ever happen again, but I'm, I'm going to have to get used to the idea. Are people doing a better job uh, in Tennessee than they were back in the spring when it comes to mass compliance and, and as your daughter found out, not being jerks about it? Not that I see. You know, I'm in Tennessee right now. Right. Because I came down here, quarantined for 12 days, then moved in with my daughter. We're waiting for the birth any second now oh. of her baby. Um, and she just, you know, 
She has not gone anywhere, not inside a restaurant, not inside a store since March. And they try to go to the gardens or to the park, you know, and um, she gets furious when people don't wear masks. It's it's just so selfish, you know, walk up close to a nine-month pregnant woman <laughs> and she has to stop and say, could you please put your mask on? And then they roll their eyes. And Not everyone. I can't make generalizations, but definitely it's not like New York where 90% of us are wearing masks all the time. Well, and, and again, that goes back to the top. You probably saw the Columbia University study today that if there had been any kind of coordinated federal government response, that might have saved the lives of anywhere between 130,000 and 210,000 Americans. That brings tears to my eyes just to hear you say that because, you know, I lost a couple friends. One of my closest girlfriends lost both her parents to COVID and the unnecessary loss is, is, it's unspeakable. It's just too much to consider how much grief is rolling in waves across this country, all of those families. And then, you know, more than half of those deaths didn't have to happen. Uh, The proceeds of Crawl Into the Promised Land will go to the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement. Can you talk a little bit about what they do? Well, they are, um, it's painful what they do. One of their initiatives is to document all the lynchings in Arkansas Mm. going back to the early part of the 19th century and to create memorials for each side of lynching. And the beautiful thing that they're doing, I mean, that's beautiful in itself, but is to bring together not only the descendants of those who were lynched, but the descendants of the perpetrators and create a space where they can talk and heal together and be united. I mean, that to me is real reconciliation and reparation is when those two halves come together. And because my ancestry on my dad's side is in Arkansas, I wanted to uh, do something to give proceeds to something that was related to Arkansas. Because at the same time that I wrote Crawl Into the Promised Land, the lyrics, I wrote uh, this song called The Killing Field. Because the Black Lives Matter movement really deeply affected me, thinking about the racism in the South and the racism of my grandfather, to be honest. And how you can carry those wounds and that toxicity through the generations, and that my father broke the chain of it, but it's up to my generation to go a step further into reconciliation. So that's why I, um, the proceeds go to them. Well, that sounds like an amazing organization. Well, I, I'm, I, I'm in a little Twitter bubble as I guess we all are. And, uh, I, I'm always, uh, I'm lifted, even even with the tone, when you will sometimes begin the day by asking, what fresh hell? But then I uh, <laughs> I remind myself, and, I, and this is the solace I take, is that, uh, and I say it to friends, there are more of us. Uh, there are more people in this country who believe in doing things the right way, and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see that play out here in the course of the next 10 days and that we can all lift our head and raise our hands. Oh, thank you, Rich, for quoting that line. I believe it, too. If you look at the goodness that has come out in people during this really hard time, it, it's deeply moving. 
And I believe that is in most of us, like you said. Well, thank you, as always, for the inspiration that uh, you've given us again with Crawling to the Promised Land. It's always a treat to talk with you, Roseanne. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rich. It's always a treat to speak with you. And uh, congratulations on the upcoming birth as well. Yeah, thank you very much. It's very exciting. (laughs) All right. Hope for the future. Indeed. All right. Thank you, Roseanne. Be well. Stay safe. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Man, oh, man, uh, she is she is so much fun to talk to. She's so smart and so insightful, has such a great way of looking at the world. I don't, there aren't many folks I enjoy talking with more than Roseanne Cash, and then add on to it the fact that she's an incredible musician, singer, and songwriter. Always a delight to have her on the show, and um, always great to have new music coming out from her as yeah. well. And so, uh, yeah, we'll play... Uh, We'll play some of that new song coming back here after the break as we hear from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we return, yeah, some Roseanne Cash music and our conversation with a writer, author, Meryl Marco on downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back here on Downtown, the podcast, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell. And as you heard, uh, Roseanne Cash wrote the lyrics to this. Her husband, John Leventhal, wrote the music and plays most of the instruments on it. A little help from her son, Jacob Leventhal weighing in, and Sarah Jarose as well. This is Crawl Into the Promised Land. Now let's say the sinner's mass and speak the words out loud. Now we hold our sister's hand, but not when guns and spirits proud. Only in our dreams we have faith in bigger lives and plans. Check out the whole song. It's on uh, Spotify, all the music platforms, Roseanne's website as well. Roseanne Cash, Crawl Into the Promised Land. All right, up next on the podcast, a wonderful time we had uh, earlier in the week talking with the very talented writer Meryl Marco. You know her from her work as the head writer for the David Letterman Show, and she's done so much great uh, work through the years, behind the scenes, on camera, as an author of a number of books, her new one is her first graphic novel, and it's actually based on diaries that she found while cleaning her house, added her own terrific artwork to create We Saw Scenery, the early diaries of Meryl Marco. Hello, Meryl. Welcome in. Hi, how are you? I am wonderful. Your first graphic novel, as you say, six years of art school pays off. Well, I hope. Yeah, it was really fun to be doing art again. I never really thought I would have the patience to do a book like this, but I actually really enjoyed it. 
Well, it's an absolute wonderful read. Uh, the art is uh, is phenomenal, and I understand all of this. Well, all this stems from you cleaning house. Well, it was. Uh, it stems from I, I save a lot of stuff. It's just an old habit, I guess, from writing comedy. I I save stuff thinking, oh, this is going to be a good joke. That I can turn this into something, and I have an office full of just stuff and and. At the bottom of a large box, I found these. Uh, I've been doing this for years, by the way, saving stuff, and I saved all my early diaries. And I realized I hadn't looked at them in a long time, and it made me laugh that they had a lock and a key because I realized <laughs> the first one I I was like ten and a half when I got it, and was thinking, what is it I was writing when I was ten that was so um, subversive that really it needed to be couldn't see the light of day, you know, and and um. So I thought, well, maybe it would be a good idea to just sit down and read them like they're literature and write a book review of them. And then I, as I was reading them, I realized they were interesting to me in a whole other way than I knew they, they were going to be because I didn't really know what a diary was when my mother gave me one for my birthday when I was 10. So I was just writing down every single thing I did and to justify their existence. And so it was... <laughs> A recounting of years worth of stuff that I had forgotten completely. I mean, if you had said to me, what did you do in fifth grade? I would say to you, well, I think that was the, no, that might have been sixth grade. Uh, you know, I would have a thing or two, but I, I could tell you who the teacher was, but I wouldn't have been able to tell you what I did the whole year. So, um, so I thought, well, gee, that's pretty interesting to have the whole thing filled in for me. And um, and so I was thinking it at first I was going to make it into a comic strip like a, this would be a daily comic strip by a, an 11 year old in another era like it had just been discovered <laughs> and I would just draw the stuff in order to see it. I would I would draw it without judgment and just let her words speak for it. And then as I was doing that, uh, I realized I needed to analyze it further because um, it required some perspective on my part. And then I started just getting into it. Uh, the journey begins with the family's move to North Miami. Is is it safe to say that your mom wasn't all that impressed at first? With Miami? Yeah. My mom was never impressed with anything. <laughs> My mom was completely never impressed with anything. She was the most critical person I've ever met, I think. My, I, after she died, I found her diaries, and she had written of St. Mark's Square in Venice. Um, in terrible taste by my standards. <laughs> she was just unbelievable. I actually, after I read her diaries, I realized it had been really futile for me to be trying to please her my entire life. It had been a losing battle before it ever began. But um, you know, I don't know how she felt about Miami. Actually, I now that you now that you mention it, um, it had a lot of weird stuff about it. It was a period of time where they had uh, Negro and white bathrooms, so that was not mm. impressive. And then, of course, Florida. Who doesn't know about Florida now? It was Florida in its more primitive form at the time. <laughs> uh, we meet some interesting characters along the way in the book. Was Miss Clemson always unpleasant when giving piano lessons? She always was. I think that, isn't it true? I don't know anybody else's uh, piano teachers, but aren't they often somebody who really wanted to be a a concert pianist and just something bad happened or they just didn't or they couldn't or I, anyway, that's what, that certainly is who she was. I always think to myself, you know, the way they taught piano in those days was 
there was books of piano tunes that for kids that you had to work off of, and they had names of songs like Wheatlands and and the <laughs> Russian boat song, and you know, had they. I really feel like had they only taught me any kind of contemporary song, something by Smokey Robinson, for instance, or anything, I, I would have been able to be way more interested in playing piano than I was learning Wheatlands and memorizing it. <laughs> I had two piano teachers die on me in the space of a calendar year, and I, I took that as a sign from the music gods. <laughs> That's how they give signs, the music gods. They kill off your teachers. <laughs> Uh, the best, I've read that over and over I, again. It's good to get that confirmed. Uh, the best part yeah. of your days as a kid came at 3.30 with your friend, the television. Yeah, you know, that was that's the funny thing about reading these diaries. So once I started really getting into it and drawing and stuff, I realized I had to um, create a story arc. And then you realize, or I did, that I didn't really know what the story arc was in my life until I began to analyze it putting together pieces that I had forgotten about entirely. And and that was when it occurred to me that I was sort of inexorably being drawn to television. I'd forgotten about that entirely because I um when by the time I hit high school I was a snob and I didn't watch any T V at all. And when I got to UC Berkeley I was um you know, it was considered uh illegal really basically <laughs> to watch anything except for PBS or, you know, or some kind of documentaries or something. So I just I hadn't realized that I really I was raised on TV and I was I was always obsessed with it. Kind of I I had the schedules memorized and I wrote down in these diaries every show I watched and what the plot was and I was way more into it than I remember. <laughs> We're talking with Meryl Marco on Downtown. Her new book is We Saw Scenery. Uh, Glenn, your antagonist as a child, could you ever have imagined back then? that he would grow up to become Dr. Marco. Uh, yeah, no, his, in, in fact, his kids haven't seen this book yet. I'm waiting <laughs> for the other shoe to drop. They don't know that guy at all. You know, the guy was, was a lunatic who was making my life miserable. They only knew this kind of academician. He turned out to be a really nice guy, but, but he really, he made me nuts. <laughs> he was not the only annoying brother, I'm told. There are others in this world, but he was among them. All right, when you were a Girl Scout, set us straight here, did you really watch a film called The Story of Menstruation? Oh, yeah. That was big in that era. They were making everybody watch that film. It wasn't just Girl Scouts, but my Girl Scout troop. I mean, I'm told that Girl Scouts were supposed to be kind of camping and learning about the outdoors and stuff. And the only thing my Girl Scout troop did, according to my diaries, and I couldn't have told you this, by the way. I didn't remember what they did. But we were, we were learning how to cook and we we were getting heavy domestic indoctrination in those days i had to take in eighth grade i had to take um this thing home ec which i'm pretty sure they haven't had in a long time and sadly they didn't actually even teach home or ec i don't know what they were i mean they, they the one thing that i wrote down in there was we learned how to um we learned how to make co fruit cocktail by opening a can and I still think about that and think, how did they get away with that in school? How is that, how is that not something you could have figured out on your own? <laughs> I'll ask you this, but I'm sure you've asked yourself uh, before. What did you see in Wayne Walker? You know, that's the, yeah, that's the big one. That's <laughs> where I started redoing the diary. Well, I was very much in love with him, and then it turned out he was a Nazi. 
And I didn't know he was a Nazi. <laughs> and that's when I came to that, I remembered that he had been doing that stuff. He used to, um, he was clearly Jew baiting me. He would he would go Heil Hitler when he would see me, but I was so unidentified with the idea of being a Jew that you would be striking out against. I mean, I just didn't have that as identity. My parents didn't have religion, really, and I wasn't raised religious, and it didn't really occur to me that he was um, anti-Semitic. And, and why did I love him? I loved him because my idea of love was um, had, had a one-word dimension, and the word was cute. And um, and I didn't look any further into it than that. If, if he was cute, then I loved him, and that was all there was to that. And I, I don't think I ever had a conversation with him. I couldn't tell you a single thing about him. I do remember he had a pair of red pants, and that's about it for me and Wayne and the fact that he used to do the German salute when he saw me. <laughs> I, that was a point at which I really started redoing the book because I felt like, well, she's not going to have a talk with her, That the girl that was me, because I didn't. I was also looking for at what point do you turn into yourself? And when I say you, I mean me. At what point do you become um, someone you recognize? Because when you're young enough, you're not really doing anything more than acting on genetics and family influences and stuff. So I was wondering where that all adds up. And I found it to be more or less when I was around 12. But when I was the kid who was in love with a Nazi, <laughs> why I started, I started drawing myself into the panel so I could sit down. With, I felt I can't leave this go uncommented on, and so I felt like I had to draw myself in there and just go, "What's wrong with you?" <laughs> to myself, and um, and I also came to realize when I was doing that that had I actually been able to do that and walk in on her, she would have just gone, "You don't know. What do you know? Like you know anything?" Because that was basically who I was. You went to a junior high school, uh, as I did, and the stakes were different there, certainly than elementary school and even in today's more, I don't know, touchy-feely middle schools. Yeah, well, junior high school, well, everything was um, quite a bit weirder, don't you think? Oh, yes. I I don't know how old you are, but certainly it seems to me that it was the rules and everything were a lot um, more stringent and insane and one-dimensional at that period of time. And junior high was, um, it was at 7th, 8th, 9th, and it was treacherous. It was, I mean, nobody really, they keep making movies about 8th grade, so nobody really gets through 8th grade on skates, but I certainly didn't. I was, it was painful to read the 7th, 8th, and ninth grade entries, and also to see how, how one-dimensional I was until, my family picked up and we moved to California that, and I changed into an entirely different person. I was really, um, I was part of a, like a secret sorority and we were just, uh, we were in that sorority just because we could be in it. It didn't seem that it had any other function besides getting in. What was that? And we had, was that the club? Idea what to do once we were in, we just needed to get in. And then there we were. It's kind of like my dog in the car wants to get in <laughs> once he's in, Wants to get out. That's the whole. Was was that the club? That was the club. Yeah, that was the club. We were. It was very big. It meant a lot to me to get in, and then and then I had many entries where we went. Well, had a meeting. Nothing happened. You know. <laughs> I don't know what what the function of that club was. The function was to prove you could get in. What happened uh, in your life in 1962, where the emphasis of your diaries became? 
becoming a news correspondent, passing on the events of the world. Well, yeah, that was another thing that made me laugh. I, uh, I, you know, that's what's that's what's interesting about reading your old self. Is I, I realized I was writing for an audience, and I don't know where I got the idea that I should be writing for an audience. I guess. I guess from watching so much television, I, I really don't know. I just, I, I was also doing a lot of calling radio stations um, because at that time AM radio was a really big thing, and there were always and they they allowed you to um, dedicate songs so that you could call in and then you could wait around all night long to see whether or not you, you had your name attached to a song. But they were running a lot of contests, and I apparently was uh, entering all of them. <laughs> I was, I was uh, recording it in my diary. I didn't know that I, I entered a contest where you had to yell the word "bone jammer" and then you would get um, a record album if you if you were the third caller to call in and yell "bone jammer." <laughs> I, I, that's one, one of the ruder words I've ever heard, but I don't think it occurred to me at the time that it was a thing. But in fact, I don't even I really want to think what they meant by "bone jammer," but. Um, but I entered that contest and many others and recorded them all. So anyway, I was drawing these things because I wanted to see what that, what it looked like to be her. I didn't really, I remembered being her, but I didn't remember much about what it looked like as a piece of video. So that I was drawing it to see if I could re-remember it somehow. And it didn't really look all that familiar, but it struck, it started to strike my friends as being a book. So that was when I started trying to turn it into a book. Now, when you got to California, that's where you, in a sense, discovered the perfect mate uh, in John Lennon. Oh, yeah. No, that's another thing that just makes me laugh. It's what if, you know, I was very much in love with John Lennon, and um, and I think, guess I was the only one who was, you know, pretty much just me. He was lucky to have a fan. And um, and I, I still think, you know, what would have happened if he... I had met him and I I had dinner with him or something. What would I have been saying to this guy? Like, hey, that album full of songs, those are good. I, those are good songs. <laughs> <laughs> what in the world would he have had to say to me? You know, and it, it, it's kind of funny to think about. You know, a thirteen-year-old or a fourteen-year-old with, if you actually had the opportunity to be around these guys, you're dreaming about all the time. Also, I mentioned uh, at that same point that I was very, very much in love with John Lennon. I had written a rather lengthy discussion of how I couldn't understand why anyone liked sex, that it was really, you'd have to be really bored to be involved with that. <laughs> so, so <laughs> anyway, that's, that was me, and I made a book out of it. Is it safe to say that Bohemian Merrill was not a big hit on the home front? Uh, the Bohemian Merrill, uh, no. No version of Merrill after I turned into anybody was a big hit on the home front. That lasted for the duration of my life. <laughs> it was, the, I had uh, really difficult parents, and they uh, they never really got around to figuring me out ever. So that's the way it goes sometimes. But um but they got along with me better when I was was a kid who was just recording every single thing she did in the fifth grade, where I when I was going to Girl Scouts and learning recipes. That was, I think, the last version they really endorsed. The book is is so wonderful. It's so funny. But I also have to think, on a serious note, that how wonderful it is to discover this 
this part of your life because the memories tend to get blurry over time. And uh, although I'm not sure I'd want to go back and see whatever I was thinking back when I was 12 years old, but what a fascinating journey it must have been. Well, it's really interesting to find out that you, had, in fact, told you, there is a way to find out what you did for for year after year after year. I mean, I was I, I tried to fill in something every single day of these diaries, and then when I didn't, that was they're using it for the end pages on this in this book. I would write the I'd go back, and when I saw a blank page, I felt ashamed of myself, and I'd write nothing happened, nothing that I can remember happened because I wanted there to be data on every page. So. Yeah, it's really, um, it's a weird locked closet to find out what you don't remember. That, you know, it all seemed kind of familiar, but um, certainly I wouldn't have been able to tell you about any of it. If if I was hypnotized and asked, I could have told you a thing or two, but I certainly couldn't have told you year in and year out what I was up to. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. It's a lost world, kind of, and it's a world that doesn't exist now. It does, though. It's the same and different, you know? It's yep. like we didn't have climate change, but we had the hole in the ozone layer, and I was really worried about that. And the uh, thing I was worried about amounted to climate change. So I was sort of on the decks for decades, this stuff, you know? Same with um, we had the war in Vietnam. We didn't have Trump, but we had Nixon, you know? And I was really worried about Nixon. So kind of some of the stuff in perpetuity you know how are your dogs doing dogs always doing good (laughs) i have some happy dogs they i i treat the dogs very well well because they're better than most people right oh they're great yeah no i really really like animals in fact i'm in the middle of my my current partial hobby is i'm going to sell all the late night with david letterman stuff um that i own and raise money for animal charities and i just sold one jacket for a lot of money, I'm going to go mail it off now, and I'm going to put another thing up. And that that makes me happy that I can contribute to I've always wanted to write sort of large checks to animal charities, and this is allowing it. So That is wonderful. Good. Well, the book is, is so much fun. We saw scenery, the early diaries of Meryl Marco. I'm pretty sure it's going to blow this whole this whole Trump uh, re-election campaign off the front pages like we need. Yeah, you know, that was why I was happy it was coming out right around the election. <laughs> yeah, I, when they told me when it was coming out, I went, perfect. You know, can we do it on November 2nd? That would be, even be better. <laughs> <laughs> well, Meryl, I've been a fan of your work for so long. It's great to talk with you this afternoon. Love the book. We wish you much success uh, with this and, and everything else in your life. Well, thank you so much. It's very nice talking to you. Meryl Marco here on Downtown, the podcast. And a couple of talented folks this week enjoyed talking with Meryl and the wonderful Roseanne Cash as well. Hope you enjoyed it too. Thanks so much for joining us uh, this time. Spread the word. Give us, a, give us a good review. That would be most appreciated. Subscribe. Tell your friends. And hopefully join us next time on Downtown. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.